0: Ladies and gentlemen, everyone in between, welcome back to A Round with Stephen Cole. As always, I am T. Cole Newton. We're coming at you pre-recorded from my bar 12-mile limit here in
1: the heart of Mid-City. As always, I'm joined by my co host Steve Yamana, great to have all of y'all back. We've got another fantastic guest joining us, a uh, pillar in the bar community here in New Orleans. You probably know her. You probably love her. If you don't, you're clearly missing out. Uh, it's, uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, ma'am.
2: Hi, I'm Abigail Deirdre Gallo, bartender at Comper Le Pen. I never
1: knew, knew your middle name.
2: Yeah. Deirdre's
1: a lovely name. Thank you. Super Irish, right? Yeah, super Irish. Deirdre of the Sorrows, right? That's where. Yes, that's right. what I'm named after. Right on, right on. Cool. Uh, that's, that's, that's what we're going to be talking about today, guys. Irish mythology <laughs> and literature. I could go on. I couldn't, unfortunately. And I'm, I'm a, almost half Irish too, but, uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, so let's jump in here for the most part. Um, we, uh, we, uh, We uh, are here today to uh, talk to Abigail just about happenings and about New Orleans and the scene and everything like that. Uh, We really like to uh, get different takes on things. We, we, at this point, we've got eight podcasts out. Uh, We've had plenty of insight from myself and my co-host Cole here about how we see things, how we see the community going as well. That's only one facet of how people can view New Orleans and what's happening in New Orleans. So, as many viewpoints as we can offer and provide and bring to the show, the better. Um, I think Abigail brings a really great viewpoint on things. She's worked downtown for a long period of time. She's a seasoned bartender. She comes from a very interesting background. Um, so let's just uh, throw it over to her. Abigail, why don't you go ahead and start off. Just tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: Sure. Um, I actually, it's it's very sweet that you call me a seasoned bartender, and I am suppose I should get used to that mantle a little bit now, but I've actually only been bartending about 10 years, um, which I guess so many people are so young, but I'm 44 years old this year, so um ten years is not a huge span in my life. I spent a long time as a school teacher, as a performer, as a singer, and um, you know, working in video stores back when they had them. And um <laughs> I worked in a video store for yeah. a little while. It
0: was one of my favorite jobs of all time. It
2: was awesome. I was just reminiscing about it the other day and how much I loved working at a video store, especially a cool one. Like I still have a, a picture on my mirror of my high school boyfriend and I at prom together and it's laminated. And I'm like, why did I get that laminated? And I'm like, oh yeah, that was one of the perks of working at the video <laughs> store. You had access to a laminator. And you're wondering
1: why Blockbuster video doesn't exist anymore. It's <laughs> because you and your people just using that laminator for free. You know, that's <laughs> cost money. That's no, the I bottom was, line. I was a mo- it
2: was a mom and pop store in Percival, Virginia. Thank you very much. <laughs> I like really worked hard on getting people when they came in for Ghost said, no, we're out of that. But you should really get this movie called Truly Madly Deeply same issues but really well done with British actors right like Alan Rickman is delightful and Truly Madly Deeply he's a dreamboat you think of him as a villain from Die Hard no dreamy <laughs>
1: Right on. So besides So, so
2: yes, yeah, so I had this I had this background and uh luckily I also happened to be living in New York City at the time of the Great Cocktail Revolution in the turn of the twenty first century. So I was lucky enough to sit um on the other side of the mahogany from um Dale de from Audrey Sanders, from Julie Reiner, and learned from the best and Sasha Petresky and really got to learn um the art as it was developing and i'm realizing now what how lucky i was to really experience that because i i feel like there's so many people coming up now who are experiencing it secondhand or read it in a book or heard stories about it but they never actually got to feel what it was like to you know taste your first ever um american trilogy to to experience rye whiskey for the first time well not here in new orleans right that was a terrible example
1: that's a really great point um i definitely got into craft cocktail bartendings probably um in our time span i've, I've only been doing craft cocktail bartendings for five or six years i've been bartending for about 15 years at this point mostly you know corporate restaurants clubs mm-hmm. local places here in new orleans um I'd agree with you on one point that it seems like the distance between some of these innovators and some of these like, you know, uh these professionals that we know who really spark this second movement, third movement, whatever in cocktails, uh the distance between people Starting to bartend now, and those people has increased, it seems. Like, yes. uh, down here in New Orleans, we had the Museum of the American Cocktail that was at the Riverwalk Mall, uh, that's now featured in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in Aretha Castle Haley. Yes. But Chris McMillan and Laura McMillan at the time, uh, they worked to bring, um, the guest speakers in every single month. and Absolutely. We were able to volunteer for that. So we got to get into free as long as we volunteered and helped batch drinks. But that gave us access to David Wandrich and to you know uh, Dale DeGroff and yes. you know, Ted Hag was featured often at that time. Yeah, yeah, and it was it was amazing. I mean, like, and I don't think that bartenders now here in New Orleans have access to that. It's kind of no. Yeah, it's very much just like figure it out on your own.
2: I, I do feel like that that's missing. It's like you know, get a book or learn from somebody, and mm-hmm. and you know, I'm like, I learned from the originators, and I don't think, and I spent 15 years as a teacher, and I still don't feel like. I teach as well as, as they did mm. to me. Um, because they just captured some sort of magic. And maybe it's also because it was still new and it was exciting. And it was, you were doing something that no one else was doing and you were a, a real pioneer.
0: Well, why don't you talk a little bit about how you wound up coming down to New Orleans? I know that you w- were. Hired specifically to run the bar program at Sobu. Is that accurate? Well,
2: I'll tell you, I was working at a bar in Brooklyn called Fort Defiance. Uh, House of Pegu, if you're following the family tree. (laughs) Sinjin Frizzell opened up a great little neighborhood bar, very much like yours, Cole, that had great food, great cocktails, and a great neighborhood environment. And uh, he went to Tulane and lived in New Orleans till 99, so he had this kind of New Orleans flavor. And he, I remember him watching me struggle as I was trying to advance. In the industry, and he told me once, he's like, you should really think about moving to New Orleans because I think they will appreciate the type of hospitality that you give. Because while I was making the same drinks and, 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 you know, coming up with great cocktails and working besides the greats, I was not advancing. And because at the time in New York, if you didn't have a mustache, if you didn't wear a vest, if you weren't 20 something years old and super nerdy about Bitters and gin and stuff. It was very difficult to move ahead in the industry and, and get jobs. Um, or, and if you weren't, you know, I was also not young and beautiful. I was a 35 year old overweight woman. <laughs> I was not what people were expecting. I actually, to get more attention in the industry, you know, despite the fact that I went to every USPG meeting and that I went to all these bars, it wasn't until I got this giant Florida Lee tattoo on my arm after a visit front to Tales of the Cocktail, that I suddenly, within the New York industry, started to be taken a little bit more seriously as a bartender. Isn't that funny?
0: We have talked actually several times about how arm tattoos are sort of de rigueur to to get advancement in it this was, industry I
2: really I really got it to hoping Sinjin would give me better shifts at Fort Defiance <laughs> 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 and it worked guys it worked
1: you heard it from Abigail guys <laughs> if you want to get ahead in this industry you go to your local tattoo shop and start uh, get get those so that, sleeves going that on. was
2: like 10 years ago that was how you get ahead like 10 years ago Um, so I and I had been coming down for Tales of the Cocktail thanks to a, a great friend of mine Dave Catania who gave me a shot in the industry as a broker as well Um. And introduced me to a whole bunch of people. I met him through Linnell Smothers, another great founder in the industry as far as like the knowledge and the spirits and, and you know, everything that you need to make cocktails. Um, I uh, started coming down for Tales of the Cocktail. I actually was lucky enough to win a trip um, for the official cocktail. I, I uh, competed in the Best Margarita in 2010. And then I, the next year I, I got to go again with Best Um uh pina colada and the, the most fun part of that is my station was right next to chris Hanna, and even though i sort of knew him i didn't really know him but i was super excited and when the judges came to judge him he was having problems with his blender and i jumped in i'm like use my blender here chris go and he was so gracious and so sweet and i was just so honored and happy to like be able to support him making his drink
1: So you're basically saying you helped him win his James Beard award.
2: (laughs) Basically, I'm saying yes. Never would have made it.
1: (laughs) Never would have made it. Those were the James Beard judges, and they were waiting for him to blend that drink for him. That was the moment.
2: Oh, my God. I'll never forget the day he walked into my bar in Brooklyn, and I was so excited, so excited that he had come. I called Sinjin, and I was like, Chris Hanna's here. Chris Hanna's here. Like, Chris Hanna is definitely one of the reasons why I wanted to move to New Orleans. His vibe, his style, and his bar. I wanted that. Had to be my local bar, I mm-hmm. wanted to feel like fancy but also comfortable. Like, I wanted to feel um, that brand of hospitality.
1: That's a really great point. Um, and I think um, I've, I believe I've mentioned you before on the show as well, Abigail. Uh, but something that you do really well uh, that you bring um, is your personality and your form of hospitality. Uh, the Friend 75 is a great bar, it's a beautiful bar. I don't know if they would be as successful as they are without. The form of hospitality that Chris has ingrained in his entire staff. I mean, yes. that is that is the biggest advantage that he has. He makes great drinks. Um, he is his personality is fantastic, but it really is this sense and philosophy of hospitality. Absolutely. I think that especially that's not
0: that jives well with the milieu of the French 75 bar because it is attached to and very much part of nodes, which is one of those old school haute creole monster of a restaurants with. You know, probably eight dining rooms and several different bars and different faces, but there's a, de- there's definitely an, an old school New Orleans service idiom that, that the sun never sets on a customer complaint or that, um, that you, you, the ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. These are both, uh, Commander's Palace family idioms and yes. Sobu being a Commander's Palace restaurant. I know Abigail has been steeped in that as well, but, I think by virtue of being attached to that, um, to that old school style Hoke Creole restaurant, Chris's natural charm and desire to please really
1: fits well with that, uh, with that environment. I would go out on a limb as well to say, though, as well, um, Hannah's Hannah has created something very special with the Friend 75. Um, I feel that our nodes itself, not the most inviting space, I don't think. There's something very intimidating about that space. I don't feel that's the same way with the Friend 75. I think the Friend 75 is a very comfortable space. If I walk in there with a T-shirt, I, you know, very much, like, welcomed. I feel good. I can drink what I want to drink. I could have smoked a cigar back when you could smoke cigars back there. But walking into... Uh, our nodes itself if i walked in underdressed i i think i would immediately just be like Ooh, i gotta go
0: yeah and the maitre d would probably just send you over to the french 75 bar
2: <laughs> Yeah, <You know, it's laughs> funny it's good i always felt that way at 11 Madison Park part in in new york mm-hmm. i used to go there after my yoga class and my yoga clothes and i walked in and they made me feel so welcome and okay. took my bag off my shoulder and let me go to the bar and i'd sit with leo and have an amazing couple bites and great cocktails and a great environment and they have that too. Think, I I got to witness that.
1: Do you think that's very uh uh that's that plays with most all of Danny e. Meyer's concepts as well or I
2: would say so. You I've know. met I've met him and he's very he's a midwestern boy. He's right. very friendly and very forthcoming and I I feel like that yeah that he's got that. He's got that. I know there are some people who like read his book and become absolutely converted to that Mm -hmm. and you know like you said the commander's palace family idioms are, are like that too and you can get really sucked into that and 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 really it's a beautiful way to like live to feel like this is my duty to serve and it's a privilege and it's an honor yeah and um and you welcome everyone it's a very peaceful and wonderful way to to live
1: I think it's really interesting because Danny Meyer has he's he's gone on record as saying I believe there's an article that came back a couple months ago uh talking about and, and a lot of people have latched onto this as well when those listicles come out of like what is the new trend for the new year and everything and uh hospitality has been the big one that people throw out there it's like but this is like the, the year of hospitality like the last four years
0: somebody yeah. in one of those lists always says that this is the year that bartenders but, start being nice again <laughs> yeah
2: no 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 but I I think it goes beyond hospitality and it goes to being empathetic mm-hmm. and to being a compassionate listener. Yeah, um, You are a compassionate... People come in to your bar, to your restaurant. It could be their best day. It could be their worst day. Either way, you're there for them. Mm-hmm. You know, we play the part of the psychiatrist. We play the part of the doctor. We play a lot of a lot of different roles. Um Sometimes people come in and they just want to be told what to have. I have, when I'm tired, like that's some one of my most difficult things. When people are like, I don't know, what do you want? And I'm like, I want to yell at them and be like, no, I'm here to serve you. What do mm-hmm. you
0: want? But what they, <laughs> what they want in that that's, moment is not to have to make a decision.
2: Exactly. So. Exactly. And sometimes you have to really be an empathetic, really open listener to understand that and be like, you know what? Come to me. Yeah. I'm going to take care of you. Don't worry about it.
1: I've always just taken a lot of humor in that, for me personally. I think Neil, Neil had his thing when he came back to say, it's like, you know, I don't, Neil went on record saying that he didn't he disagreed with that because he always thought that hospitality is a trend. I, I think he, he was, I'm sorry, he was featured in some article, I can't remember, and somebody had brought it up. It's like, you know, what do you think about this new trend of hospitality? And he's like, well, here in the South, it's just... The way you treat people. It's the you know? way you
2: treat people. So, well, it should be how we treat humans right. and other humans. I mean, this should be like a global phenomenon. Right. And it's just
1: uh, every time I meet a new bartender coming up, it's like, I love making drinks. I just hate dealing with customers. It's like, you should not be a bartender.
2: You You could be a
0: mixologist. There are places, there. there's room for that in the industry for mm. people who are spirits experts. You can be a distiller. You can be any yeah. number of people behind the scenes. Yes. You can develop recipes and you can develop techniques there's all there's room for you in this world but you should not be necessarily i mean you can also learn how to be nice to people even if you aren't naturally you can learn those skills that is something you can develop I, that's one of the things i actually disagree with danny meyer on is he looks for people who have sort of a natural innate what he refers to as an hq or hospitality quotient he measures certain like uh emotional attributes uh, but he says that you can't teach that. And I really do things like you might not be able to teach somebody to be nice, but you can teach someone how to fake it. And honestly, mm-hmm. in this business, it's Faking a business. It, okay. Faking it is good enough.
2: Faking it is making it. It really is. I mean, I always, I tell my, my bartenders that the biggest thing they could do is when they come in is let it all go and smile. You, <laughs> the, the smile can just relieve the worst situation. Get, get release your face let it go smile in when you start faking it you it just starts to come naturally right and people think you're happy all the time <laughs> so It's uh, okay
1: I, I never got to see you on stage Abigail uh, I get a very big you know sensation of like what you were as an actress mm-hmm. um, what you are as an actress because it's something that's intrinsic with you I mean you Kimberly Patton Bragg some of these other bartenders who I've met who have an acting background and a stage background um, one thing that I've, I used to say, I don't, I don't think this anymore. I'm very happy here at 12 mile in the last couple jobs I've been at that. I don't know right like, you are. <laughs> I don't think that, um, I have to play a character while I'm mm. working, but for seven years while I was working at the bubblegum shrimp company, you know, the food quality, not exactly like top of the notch the yeah. drink quality definitely not top of the notch um there was a certain element of that was a restaurant and a lot of these chain chain restaurants really depend on the servers being hospitable to the point of detracting from people's experience so you yeah. are creating the experience so that they don't focus on the food they don't focus on the drinks yeah. um it's one of those things you like distract their kids long enough that like you know that they're very happy that like their kids are entertained for like an hour or so, and they can just eat some food and put it inside their bodies yeah. um so I was used to when I would train people in open stores with that company, I used to tell people it's a really important thing to, that you have this character that you can turn on, but you need to be able to make sure that you turn it off because like if you just keep it on all the time it's
2: exhausting it's
1: exhausting so n- how do you feel about that
2: i agree i it, well, just like there's there's a lot of techniques that you could use personally within within acting there's a lot of like Improv games you could play and there's a lot of like skills as far as different ways you do acting. A lot of British actors tend to be more outside in, you know, once they put on a coat or put on the wig or put on the makeup, they become the character. A lot of American actors are more Stanislavski and it's all like, I have to reach inside of me and feel what I was feeling and then I'll be able to feel that way, you know, and, and I think the trick is to find what works for you. Do you need to like think about how much fun you have playing cards with your grandma to, like, put a smile on your face and have a good, you know, interaction with a guest, then use that. If you need to, like, personally, I need to put my hair up and put that flower in my hair and feel comfortable in my dress and my apron and then, like, I've put on the costume and now I could perform. It's very important that you figure out what works for you. It's kind of like when I was teaching also, there are seven different kinds of intelligence and people learn different ways. Sometimes they learn verbally, they learn to write it down, they need to do it, you know, physically. And I do that all the time with when I'm training. I'm like, what works for you? Find out what works for you and do it. Do you need me to make you flashcards? I'll make you flashcards. Do you need to just do it while I stand behind you and whisper in your ear? Then I'll do that. You know, I'll do whatever it takes to get you to, to learn. So the trick is just figuring out what works for you and then being able to communicate that to like, well, this is what I need to be able to do my job. Like I need to be able, I was, when I started, um, at Compare Le Pen, Ricky, Gomez started that program, amazing program, and he had this view of all the bartenders dressed a certain way, and Nina and Larry were on board with that, too. And I started in a tie and in a shirt and in jeans, and I was like, I'm suffocating. Right, right. (laughs) (laughs) And I found a rabbit dress, and I brought it to Nina and Larry and Ricky, and I asked them, could I make this my uniform? I will feel so much more comfortable Mm -hmm. if I could put this costume on and and they were they were very supportive and let me do it and now that's kind of become my signature thing I have like five different rabbit dresses and rabbit shirts and everyone compliments me on them and I give out cards now like oh you want to know where I got them here you go because it's it's become like part of my persona and it's but it helps me do my job because it makes me comfortable in the character and the persona I put on when I'm doing my work.
1: Right
0: on. What is your experience with that, Cole? I think there's definitely a performative aspect of bartending and it helps, like, I, I find myself to be a person who can very much, there's, I have a lot of different sides to my personality. I have a very sort of pseudo serious intellectual upper crust could talk to (laughs) bankers and senators and what have you without too much trouble. But I also, you know, I went to public schools. I've been around, my bar is very much in a neighborhood that's very mixed demographically, and I need to be able to talk to different kinds of people and to relate to them on their level. And I think one of the important things is to find the different things, to find the different aspects of your personality that you can bring out so you can modulate Yourself to individual guests without being inauthentic. Because everyone has those different things inside of them. There are a lot of people who like, listen to classical music at one point in their night and then listen to hardcore rap music later on that same night. You're not being untrue to who you are if you change the way you present yourself based on the guest experience. Absolutely. And, and especially, and I think this is even probably even truer for servers than it is for bartenders because people approach bars in a very different way than they approach tables. But they're especially in a fine dining environment when you're a server, being able to identify which guests want that white glove experience, want you to do everything by the book and treat them exactly as your manual would suggest and being able to distinguish between those guests and the guests that want the opposite of that—that that want you to just pull up a chair and sit down at the table with them and just shoot the shit, have a good old time—and you're just there to make sure they have fun and everything goes here at this fun table over, you know—and but then the next table is like, no, very much by the book, you know, like here's your coffee, madam, you know.
1: <laughs> so, be, but
0: yeah, that being able to, to to flip that switch on a dime because yeah. it could be the next table over and it could be a completely different, but also <laughs> equally authentic. uh reflection of who you are, both professionally, but as a person. Because you, you really, people can tell when you're being inauthentic
1: in either environment.
2: Absolutely. Right on.
1: Uh, there's a, little, a lot of great things we could branch off and talk to, like what both of you just said. Something that uh, just popped into my head that I would love to hear a little bit more about. Um, I think the example you just mentioned at comparable La Pam, which is a great restaurant, I think... Definitely a top three restaurant for me in the city right now. I've never had a negative service experience there, and the food is just oh. really, really great. Oh,
2: that makes me so I happy. I did have a
1: bad oyster there one time, but that's nobody's fault. That's <laughs> what happens when you eat oysters. <laughs> like, you're going to eat a bad oyster. So you're going
2: to eat a bad just oyster. Just deal with it. That's, that's, that is that's the life of eating oysters. It's so, so, worth, oysters. It, it's
1: so, so worth it, They're so good. I love oysters. <laughs> <laughs> just deal with it the next day. It'll be good. But... um, so, uniforms you were just speaking about, Abigail. Um, I think that there's something that's within the industry. I think it's getting better at this point. Um, maybe it is. I don't know. That's, that's, that's inherently a bias that I have that things are getting better in this vein. But that idea of, of making the image of a bartender very masculine, masculine yes. behind a bar. So, like, taking, like, you know, women and then it's like, you need to wear this vest, you need to wear this tie, you need to wear this button-up shirt it's kind of one of those things where it's just like you know how can I be comfortable how can be I be as hospitable as I need to be when you're kind of forcing me to have this blank slate like I'm not allowed to be myself I'm not allowed to like you know you know inhibit my own like you know sex and gender and everything like that um Your thoughts on that? Isn't
2: that ironic considering that, you know, and this happened a lot when I was coming up in the industry in New York and I would complain about the unequal treatment that women got. And I would get a lot of guys that'd be like, come on, the majority of bartenders are women and they use their tits to get tips. And I was like, what? And they're like, you know, all those other bartenders kind of talking about how, you know, bartenders in slutty outfits are the ones that really make all the money. Mm -hmm. And I was horrified. That they thought that that was, that that was the case. And then I thought, well, maybe that is the case. And then I had to like kind of deal with, well, where I, where do I want to be in this industry? And how do I want to represent myself as a woman? And, um, yeah, the, it's, it's, it's like in every industry, guys, seriously. If, 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 if you're a woman, your place is in the kitchen, unless you're a fancy chef, in which case you are a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, if you get to the height of any, you know, the, the, the scrum level of any industry is always rung by women and immigrants and people of color. And as soon as you get to the upper echelons, it starts getting whiter and more male. And that's the case in every single industry. Mm-hmm. In poly, that's the case. I don't, I can't think of, uh, can you think of a? Is there still a community somewhere in the middle of the South Pacific that's run by women? That's a matriarchal society. I don't know, but for the most part, globally, this is the issue, and we make up more than half of the population of the planet, and it's about time that we're recognized that we're human too.
0: Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you feel that cause I would. I wouldn't necessarily describe New Orleans as advanced in many metrics but I'm curious if you feel and just looking at it I no I cannot be objective I you know my my identities are largely considered to be invisible by most people in that male is sort of the default and white is sort of the default and cisgender and straight are the default so its, it's but there, they are positions that I have that I'm so people don't see me as having a bias in those ways but I do you know like people who look like me don't see me as having yeah. a bias but I, yeah. I clearly do um, but from where I sit, it does feel like New Orleans is slightly more welcoming to female bartenders than other markets have been. We've got people like Lou Brow who's been part of the Commander's family for a long time. Uh, Kimberly Patton Bragg, who has been an industry luminary in New Orleans for a long time. and Tunnerman, I think, has played a big influence there. And then there's younger people as well. Uh, Maggie Morgan and Katie Dubois. There are a lot of very well-regarded Female bartenders in New Orleans, and I'm wondering if your experience has been significantly different here, or if maybe I just would like to believe that's the case, and I'm just picking out you know, cherry-picking examples because they fit my argument. Because I, I can't tell; I don't know. This is—I don't live in that world that you do. So
2: I have had people from other places tell me that they feel that that's the case, and I—I I certainly did too. That's one of the reasons why I came here. Uh, someone told me to to live in New York City. you have to be successful to live in Los Angeles. you have to be good looking, but to live in New Orleans, you just have to be yourself and I just wanted to be myself and still succeed. However, I will tell you it 's still very difficult to be a woman in an industry where um, particularly a single woman it 's so great if you have a loving supportive partner. Someone who's emotionally there for you, financially there for you, physically there for you, and maybe you have more than one person meet those needs. Um, if you don't, you still have a much greater chance of success as a single man than as a single woman. Um, no matter, no matter who you are, no matter what age you are, and no matter where you are. I'll just say in my experience, I have still seen Men start out as bartenders working, show some success, and then have people throw money at them in one way or another, so that they can have equity stake in another restaurant, another bar, or that they could open up their own place with investors. And I don't see that happening for women. And I see women who have been in the industry longer and working harder not get that opportunity.
1: This is what I see from an outside perspective. If you're, if you're a, a white male or even myself, you know, I'm an Asian man as well. If, if you're a man in this industry, it seems that people will invest in you. Yes. Uh, If you're a woman in this industry, it's almost like you still have to prove yourself to a lot of these investors. Like You'll come on, and they can bring you on as a bar manager, but it's like, well, I just want to see what you can do. It's like there's this vetting process that's involved. It's not like you're brought in at the very beginning. You're not trusted to do things like design the bar. You're not trusted to do a lot of the pricing or anything like that. Um, it's a very unequal view, I think, when it comes down to it. I don't, I don't see that happening here in New Orleans or a lot in the industry as well, where, where a lot of women are just given full control over the perms the same way that men are giving full control over things or that yeah. investors are approaching them. Uh, as much to be like, you know, uh, just, just make me money. You know, yeah. I think that, that is not there. It's like, it's, exactly. there still this, this bias that exists now that just like, you can't run this or you can't, you don't have, I don't know, the creativity and the drive to really execute this project. And I think that's, that is the problem in our industry. It might exist in different industries as well, but it, it really comes down to, it's like you can get so far, but like getting to that next level is very difficult. It's
2: very difficult without without support. Yeah, without that support, I'm talking about. And and I have I've sat in on and being interviewed with some of the strongest, amazing, accomplished women of Commander's Palace, and and all of the bar chefs there, and we were all talking about um, that book, Lean In. And the reporter, who was amazing and very smart and had the foresight to ask, a lot of that book deals with the, um, the you know, like having that balance of life and work and raising a family while you continue on this um, uh, train of success. Um, but I noticed none of you have families. And I looked around and I realized none of us had families. We didn't have children. We didn't have, some of us didn't have partners. I have a dog like i have no time it's a pretty awesome dog (laughs) it's a pretty (laughs) awesome dog
1: i I would take your dog over a kid at this point in my life (laughs) she is
2: she is a really really awesome dog and she's a wonderful emotional support for me but i am i do i have Definitely feel like that my ability to say, hey, I want to have children, I want to have a family has been completely limited by the fact, no, that's impossible. Mm -hmm. That's going to be impossible with your career and on the trajectory you're on. And if you want to continue to like make a living, you that is not going to be in the cards where I've seen my male counterparts make babies and have beautiful children and have beautiful wives and thank them. Kindly, and when they get the awards for their support, but um, that just is not in the cards for women.
0: When well, you mentioned the book "Lean In," I wonder if you can speak a little bit to the pushback because one of the one of the major criticisms. My wife teaches negotiation strategies for women that specifically. Are designed to avoid provoking a gender bias because a lot of what Lean In suggests, and I actually haven't read the book. I've only this is all secondhand for me, but from from what I've heard that when women are in Lean In tell, tells women it's like, oh, if you if you want it, you got to ask for it. And while that is very much true, if what you're doing is negotiating in the same way that a man would negotiate, women are sanctioned for that. You women are, are you get blowback for, you It's you like, oh... Stop, st- basically, stop being such a bitch. Whereas a man would be like, Oh, he's a he's assertive. He's, he's so, so confident. confident. Yeah, Go-getter. yeah, sir. he's,
1: he's so com- going places.
0: How's I was that? thinking
2: about the word sassy, about how somebody called me sassy the other day, <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> <fuck you>. yeah, <laughs> I'm so sassy, and I'm like, you know what? what were you? If, you, if I, I was a man, can I ask I'd, what you were specifically doing
0: that was considered sassy? Do you remember offhand? I'm just curious.
2: I was probably gently making fun of them. Oh, <laughs> so
0: you're giving them sass? Is what you're saying?
2: I, <laughs> <laughs> no, I. You got a
1: book. You should probably.
2: Read. <laughs> they asked me a question, and I answered it with. Confidence and with a, a assertive and an assertive quality, and mm. they called that sassy. And yep. I was like, I'm just being confident and assertive. You asked me a question, and I answered it with like a little flair. And all of a sudden, I'm I'm sassy. Are you Are you trying to diminish me because I'm smart and I know what I'm talking about? Yes. And I'm confident. Yes, they yes. are. Yes, <laughs> they are. I'll I look at, I get
1: mad. You should. <laughs> I, in my life, I have not gotten more mad about things like that and instances like that. It's just like, one of the problems with the bar is, and it goes with sexual assault, it goes with sexual harassment, it goes with gender bias, it goes with racial inequality and everything like that, is that, you know, we've, we've, we've look at bars as being very safe places and they're very insular. I mean, the word bar comes from barrier. That's how yeah. I understand it. So the barrier between the customers and the alcohol. But in, in, a lot of instances, we're trained that like, oh well, you just have to take care of your customers and then internalize everything, or kind of like, you know, you just keep it within like the people you work with, or keep it to yourself, or it's like, oh, that's just how they are. So that's yeah. it's a big problem. I mean, like we reinforce a lot of things. Like we get people drunk, we take a lot of shit, we don't call people out on their shit. I do. Good. I we do. All need to I'm, start doing and that. You know,
2: Larry so has my back on that. That's why mm-hmm. I love him as a boss. I. Someone came in the other day, and they said, I've come to visit you, and you're never here. And he was standing right next to me. And thank goodness, because he saw my face just fall. And he said, you know, I bet she feels really bad about you saying that, considering she just put in a 50-hour week. Huh. <laughs> I
0: Yeah. No, I, I try when I can to confront people who use... Um, Incentive la- la- racial language or are being overtly homophobic or misogynistic in the bar. And there's a real instinct that we're all trained to have where we're very accommodating. Yes. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of shit you can take and there's a lot of behavior that you should just brush off. But when it comes to one of those things that's going to ruin the guest experience for the other guests in the bar, Confronting that one guest is the hospitable thing to do. That is what your job as a bartender should be: is curating a safe, a place where people feel safe and people feel comfortable. On the aggregate, so if you say, if like, if somebody's being misogynistic or racist or any of those isms that are so you know that people call us snowflakes are talking about, that we need to be able to confront those people because on the aggregate ruining that one person's day is making everyone else in your bar that their day that much better.
2: Absolutely. I tell people I'm not being politically correct, I'm just being correct. <laughs> Get <laughs> on board. Right.
0: I will admit to a certain amount of gender bias in hiring. I, I Steve's probably noticed he's one of only a couple of uh men that we have on staff here at 12 Mile Limit. The uh at least as bartenders. We do uh, both of our bar backs are, are male. Um, but I tend to, and this isn't a, a strong preference, but I tend to lean towards female bartenders. Not just because I find them more attractive. Because um, they
2: work twice as hard? They often,
0: yeah, because <laughs> a, they have to work twice as hard just to get half the recognition that men do. So they're programmed to... To hustle, but more because of what we were talking about earlier—that you have to have that high hospitality quotient. You have to be empathetic. Empathetic. You have to have an extremely high level of emotional intelligence. And I find that, on average, and again, this is this is sexist—I'll be the first to admit it—that on average, women are more emotionally intelligent. They're more perceptive, and they are better at. Those hospitality quotient metrics that that Danny Meyer talks about, but men lack self-awareness and yes. they lack emotional intelligence. Yes, on the aggregate. Again, and I'm being sexist and awful about this, but that's that's one of the reasons. And again, that we tend this to hire is a sad bartenders. part
2: of sexism is that men are like that because they're told from an early age that boys don't cry and be a man and man up and all those other horrible things. You know, don't wear pink. That we tell men on a regular basis. You know, when I, I all the time I have to deal with gender bias when people guys. Order a drink, and I have to remind them that drinks do not have genders. And it's okay. Can I get that in a less girly glass? This is not French or
1: Spanish. They do not have genders. Oh, gosh.
2: Oh, Lord. And I do, and I try to do my part to just make them feel safer about it, that it's okay.
1: Do you think it's appropriate? So I think. The very, a very common example besides the pink drinks, the glass, the shape of the glass, when somebody's like, uh, could you make that glass in a man glass for me? Oh, that
2: makes me so mad. Is it
1: appropriate to rebuke a guest by saying something along the lines of, what exactly is a man glass? Like, yeah, that's something that I might say, you know? I but, had someone
2: who said that about a Collins glass. I'm like, it's shaped <laughs> like a penis. There's oh, nothing, it's
1: more why they so manly.
2: The
0: but then again, <laughs> if you gave them a coupe that's shaped like a boob, they would have said that was even more for a I do. I used to
2: say that to them all the time. I'd be like, you know, a coupe is. Model after a boob, and if you have a problem holding it, I feel sorry for your wife.
1: Yeah, <laughs> I, I've got my own issues with coops. I think I just spill things out of coops if I have to hold a coop too long. But so it, like, a I, lot of
2: them, they use that excuse a lot. Steve, yeah. men. Yeah. Oh, yeah. you know, I, I would just spill it. I'm terrible. I'm I so clumsy. Really well, yeah, well. <laughs> <it.
0: laughs> martini glasses are poorly designed, and martini glasses spill are it. terrible. Coops, coops more less so because okay. they taper. And inward Nick and Nora
2: even more. So. And Nick and Nora, named after the Thin Man movies. Come on, mm-hmm. you well, got to be into those movies. Yeah, and that Charles and that was. Good,
0: that, those were fairly egalitarian his wife was very much i mean not in the eyes of the world outside but within, the context, of within their the context of their relationship they had a very equal partnership
2: that's what i was really drawn to you know who was really sexist though is their dog asta he fooled that? around on that his Wife dog, it was a
1: disaster. (laughs) No Ronnie Magic, am I right? He was
2: no Ronnie. Ronnie would not have put up with Asta's shenanigans. That's
0: Abigail's dog, for the record. (laughs) Those who are confused about Ronnie Magic, that is
1: not a celebrity dog yet. He's on Um,
2: Instagram, at Boonan Queen.
1: 1,000 new followers. We don't have a 1,000 <laughs> listeners. That's not going to happen. <laughs> not, but, yet. Um, that, not yet. Not <laughs> yet. With Abigail on our corner, who knows? <laughs> but um, so to that point, though, uh, do you feel that there is a measure of being able to still be hospitable, but being able to, I don't know, like, I, I don't think it's the role of a, ba- of a modern bartender. Now, we've gotten past this point where people think they need to be pedantic and they need to educate their guests. No. Uh, in that vein, like, you know, if somebody does say something that might be considered casually racist or sexist, um, you know... <laughs> is it still being is there still a matter of being able to be uh hospitable and still kind of like call them out i guess
2: absolutely i i think um i think again that comes down to reading the guest you know like i could diffuse a lot of situations with a funny voice or with a smile or telling a joke and and um you know but still push the boundary a little bit and still try to get that education in there mm-hmm. you know i I always get kind of rebuked for like, especially in this last year, talking about politics at the bar. And I'm like, this country was founded in taverns, man. Like that's how we, this is part of our discourse as a community. And we've gotten away from that, Mm -hmm. which is like, you need to be able to still serve people, like people, respect people, even if you don't care for what they stand for. They're still human beings and they need to see that in you and you need to see that in them. And once we we break that down and just have a drink together, sometimes that can make things much better.
0: But there's a big difference, I think, between a political disagreement and bigotry. Like, we can have a reasonable oh, disagreement yeah. about economic policy, but if you're going to tell me, if you're going to start calling people faggot in my bar, I will just... You ab- get out. I, would n- not, I won't say get out. I will... Not Not at first. I will say very matter-of-factly, very coldly and professionally, I would appreciate it if you didn't use that kind of language in my bar. And depending on their reaction, they'll say, oh, sorry, I was just joshing around. I was like, I understand that. I would still appreciate it. And so, And And they can stay. They can say if they are willing to not use that kind of language in the bar moving forward. I don't joke in those situations. Mm-hmm. I just, it's very matter of fact, very straightforward, not confrontational. No. And, and I, I'd say that I would appreciate it. Please. This is my bar. I mean, we have the right to refuse service to anyone. I would prefer not to refuse service to you, but I will if you continue to use that kind of language in the bar.
1: Yeah. I think it's a matter at this point, too, of just being able to like a, a seasoned bartender will bring that back. Somebody needs to be able to like one of the great skills of a bartender is being able to see where things are going to go as well, too. It's like, you know, if you set those boundaries in place right away, that just like, hey, guys, uh, this could turn into a heated political conversation. If you guys start insulting each other, if this becomes uncomfortable for my other guests, you are not supposed to be talking about this, or just being able to like cut conversations off before they develop into something, you know, terrible. I guess.
2: Yes, of course, of course. You. That's another one of the roles as bartender, sometimes as referee. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Cool. Uh, well, um, let's, uh, let's start getting you know, around to wrapping this up a little bit. I mean, that was a really great conversation. Time flies here on Around with Stephen Cole. <laughs> um, so, uh, Abigail, uh, we talked, we, we started with your history and just went on a tangent. That was really fantastic. Uh, <laughs> let's talk about where you're at now.
2: Um, I, you know, did my, my time in the quarter and learned so much and really appreciated the, the history I got working for the Commander's Palace family, and I wanted to see what life was like on the other side of Canal. So, um, when, uh, Chef Nina Compton and her husband, Larry Miller, opened up Compare Le Pen in the old 77 Hotel, newly renovated, um, property on Chapatulus, I was, ju- I jumped at it. And a lot of it had to do with Ricky, too, because no matter how much you, you think you know or how comfortable you feel, I always feel like there's room to learn more and I wanted to learn from Ricky. Ricky had this amazing, he's from here and he, um, but he had this amazing experience with Diageo and he worked in Portland and he is that kind of classic super handsome, looks great in a tie and a vest kind of bartender. Super
1: handsome you say? <laughs>
2: although although you, know, you we used, he used to, to call him really, Pretty Ricky when we, yeah, we worked yeah, at mean, Commander's Palace.
0: dude <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. He's still called Pretty Ricky. We had a, a
2: drink. People still order the Pretty Ricky at uh, Le <laughs> Pen. Feel free to order it. We'll still make it. Um, that's Ricky's drink. Um, so I, I really wanted to Learn and to see, like, he set up an amazing bar, an amazing program. It's gorgeous. Right. And then, and then when I was able to take it over, I'm just trying to keep it going. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Nina and Larry give me the freedom to do that. And I'm just trying to keep the staff motivated and excited. I've never worked at a place that kind of combines this level of food with this this level of cocktail i mean it's really and it's exactly what i entered the industry for right you know i saw that there was a hole in the industry that there were great restaurants and there were great cocktail bars and not a lot that kind of combined the two it's very hard it's very challenging but i feel like we're doing it and i feel like this is the perfect city to do it in
1: i i think a lot of restaurants here in new orleans especially could could Take what you guys are doing as an example, this partnership between the back of the house and the front of the house. It's like a lot of places will have an open kitchen you can look inside and that's supposed to be like, we're taking down the wall between the front and the back yeah. of the house. But there's a mentality. There, there's this amount of respect and there's amount of, of comfort that has, to be ha- that has to be had there in order to make that a thing. I think that you're... A great portion of that as well, too, because you are so inviting and that is something you instill in your staff members as well, too. Um, good friend Jonathan Shaku was on this radio station as well. I think he learned a great deal being able to work with you at Compare La Pan. Um, really just, you know, being in a system that was a little more stable and a little more people forward as well, too. Yeah. Um, I don't think he had that opportunity at some of the other restaurants that he was working at while in his time here in New Orleans.
2: I miss him so much just today. I almost like broke down in tears because I miss him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, if you want to say so hi to him, say it. Him
1: now. He's one of our one of our faithful oh, listeners. So. No,
2: Jayshock, miss you so much. <laughs> He'll be getting his uh, Underberg truck in the mail <laughs> shortly. His his drink. He still lives on. Uh, his travel papers is on the menu, and it's one of our biggest selling cocktails. It's super fun and delicious, and um, everything that he is. I, I was
0: I got to admit I was a little surprised because you were running the program at Sobu when you left to go work. Not running a program, you were at a position you were. You had uh, a status in the industry where you could have easily found, like if you were looking to move up, you could have easily found a position higher up with a, with an, with another company, or you could have moved laterally and run a bar program somewhere else. But that you left a pl- place where you had authority and autonomy to go work under someone else again, I found a little surprising at the time. Until I went. And had dinner at Compare Le Pan. I was like, oh, yeah, this place, <laughs> this is a place you want to get your foot in the door. <laughs> and now that you have that, that there, I think it, it, I, I think it was a brave choice that you did. And Thank you. I, I respect that. And I think it's, it's, the proof is in the pudding, I suppose. So I really, I
2: respect and love my kitchen. And I, I, I My love affair with this industry started with a literal love affair with somebody in a kitchen. So, (laughs) um, since then, nothing, but you know, I learned my lesson. I still love, love the food and I love, I love the experience. You know, we're nourishing people, um, their their bodies but I want to nourish their souls as well and that's what I feel like my part is because it's not like you said not just making drinks you are there for your personality you're there to to be an empathetic listener you're there to make people's day better and to make their experience better and I love that I get to um make them such amazing food
1: right on so uh abigail once again thank you so much for joining us here on around with Stephen cole we always like to live uh leave it off here with uh parting shots um why don't you go ahead and give some parting shots let's uh frame this a little bit out um the future of new orleans i think that there are some people who are standing back and they're waiting to see what happened in our industry right now there's so many restaurants that are open uh we're starting to see some restaurants close rents are going up education someplace that's something I'd really love to talk about in future episodes as well too the aspect of being able to start a family and stay in New Orleans is a question that we all have um what do you see as being you know the future of New Orleans and how you hope to in your way help shape and mold that
2: I I feel like like as always we're 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 innovators and we're we bring the passion we bring the love we bring the heart and we also I, I hope we continue this l- love life work balance, um, that made this such an attractive move for me, you know, to have, to have a life. Um, this is such a culturally rich city. I love the people here. I love spending time with them and I love spending time with them in uniform and out. And, and finding that balance and finding like this rewarding work life with a rewarding, um, life life is something I think is possible here. I think it's one of the last places in the world that it may be possible. Um, I don't want to keep running and trying to find that. I want to make that happen here. And I think that just needs some more awareness from the people that are here that, that we have to really not only devote our heart, our souls, but our pocketbooks and we have to devote education and we have to devote um, our time to really, really supporting each other in in this life work balance.
0: Right on. Cole, what you got? I think people talk a lot about the future of New Orleans and they think about things that are new and people talk to me about 12 Mile Limit and I say, oh, it's been here six, six and a half years, and they're like, oh, that's a really long time. And I say, no, no, it's not. Not by the standards of the city. Our the oldest bar here is almost 200 years old now. The city itself is 300 years old. I want nothing more than for the present. Of, I, 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 it's difficult to, for me to articulate, but. My number one metric for success, whenever anyone asks how the bar's doing, I say, well, it's still there. And it sounds pessimistic, but what I really mean is that my, literally my number one metric for success for this place is its continued existence. I don't want it to change identities every five years. I want this to be a place that I want this to be one of the oldest bars in New Orleans eventually. Uh, not because I want all the other bars that came before us to close, uh, but <laughs> I want I want to be here in 150 years, and I think that's what we need to be thinking about: is that the future? The future starts today. The future of New Orleans are bars that are open now and restaurants that are open now, continuing to exist, continuing to evolve, continuing to serve their communities and be something important to people. And I think that is, that's what I want for this city is to see the institutions that we have. I don't think any, I don't see any reason why Compare Le Pain couldn't be there in 50 or 100 years <laughs> and roughly be doing not the exact same menu, but to be serving people with the same dedication to quality. Hmm. And I think that's what I see the future of New Orleans is building those institutions
1: to last. Right. Instead of cashing in real quick for yeah. like, yeah. Cool. Um, yeah. Well, great show today. Like, a uh, lot of things to think about. I can't wait to get back and go back and post and kind of analyze some of this stuff and, uh, really, really start digesting it. Um, I'm blessed right now to have this opportunity to be able to share conversations with my colleagues, uh, and my friends as well, people I've known for a long period of time. So, Abigail, thank you so much for joining us on the show.
2: Thank you for having me, my dear. <laughs> right on. <laughs> uh, my parting
1: shots on this, um, you know, I say this a lot. It's about starting conversations. It's not, about coming up with solutions none of us alone can come up with solutions it's about starting a conversation and then continuing that conversation it's we live in a generation right now where it's so easy to share an article or to post something that's extremely reactionary but to follow through to get your feet wet to get your hands dirty and really kind of delve into some of these issues is really important um One of the things that I would really like to see in the future of this industry is the lessening or the striking of the word actually. I think that is an extremely demeaning way that people refer to people and our efforts inside of this industry a little bit. When they look at somebody who is as skilled and talented as you are, Abigail, or anybody in this industry, and they would say, like, oh, so you're actually a good bartender. It's like, (laughs) or this actually you made me a good drink. It's, It's, Hey, Steve,
0: where do mansplainers get their water?
1: Where, Cole? Oh, well, actually. <laughs> I think that's a that's a perfect place to end this episode on. So, um, Abigail, uh, why don't you tell everybody where they can find you at?
2: Hey, you can find me at Compare Le Pen on Chapatula Street in the old 77 Hotel. <laughs> Go, come for a staycation. Things are about to get slow, man. I'll get you a great rate. So hook me up. <laughs> there
1: you go. Just, uh, just, uh, email us here at Around with Stephen Cole and, uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll get you that hookup. You gotta follow us first though. Anyways, uh, I am your host, Steve Yamada. I am T. Cole Newton. And, uh, we'll catch you next week. Cheers. Thanks everybody.